Wonder Things Studios proudly presents Archivos Insights, conversations with today's storytellers. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm Dave Robison, and you've tuned in to Archivos Insights. Archivos Insights is designed to give us the opportunity to speak to the creative visionaries, the luminaries, the pioneers who are exploring new ways to tell stories for those of us that do so dearly love the storytelling arts. Dear friends, you may notice that Marie Bilodeau is not beside me here in the Archivos virtual studios. She had to go off and fight the fight of fabulosity elsewhere. She will be joining us for this next round of of conversations, but for now, it's just you, me, and our guest host. And let me introduce you to our guest host uh, for this episode of Archivos Insights. Uh, She was born and raised in Hanford, California. Now, the first words out of her mouth were apparently mom and Star Wars, which pretty much sets the stage for everything that unfolds from that point forward. At four years old, she declared that she would be an author, writing, illustrating, and stapling together her literary oeuvre. Included in her four-year-old canon was a tale of famous racehorses featuring man-o'-war, secretariat, the black stallion, and other real and fictional thoroughbreds. Oh yes, friends, she was horse-obsessed, reading every book in the local library she could find on the subject. Now, the intriguing thing about equine fiction is that it intersects with all manner of intriguing genres. It led to a complete fascination with the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder and extensive readings on the subject of the Pioneer West and the Civil War and, of course, historical fiction in general, which is, as we all know, just a tiny whisper away from fantasy novels, which she absolutely fell into and devoured as well. Now, there are many fascinating tidbits from her childhood that would inform her writerly pursuits later in life. For example, when she was three years old, she was in the bathtub when a 6.2 earthquake hit with an epicenter just 40 miles away. Now, it had rocked a town where her mom and grandparents had used to live, so they went to visit the site. And the images of devastation stay with her to this day, as does her fascination with the history and phenomena of tectonic upheaval. Now, she was born in the year of the Empire Strikes Back, a fact that actually makes me want to create something like Chinese astrology only for the Star Wars movies. You know, you were born in the year of Return of the Jedi. You will change your name at least once and have a deep affection for small fuzzy things. Uh, She and her older brother uh, loved the Star Wars mythology, and in the summer when their family finally got a VCR, the entire Star Wars movie trilogy was played no less than 65 times. I can only imagine the video cassette had to be replaced in October. Um, Her parents also contributed to her literary radar. Uh, Her father gave her a steady stream of really bad B-movies from the 80s, like Flash Gordon. And her mom was feeding her a steady diet of Agatha Christie novels, a fact that will become relevant later. Uh, She had started playing video games, of course. 
<laughs> but sadly, she really sucked at them, which would have spelled the end of her engagement with the medium until, at the age of 12, she discovered Final Fantasy. She still sucked at the gaming, but the story arc, particularly in Final Fantasy II, was so compelling and rich compared to the other offerings in the medium that she was utterly entranced. The hook of the fantasy genre was firmly set, and she got reeled in. Now, the teen years unfolded, and she became known for her writing in school. But, you know... The teen years can really suck, as many of us can attest. As we approach that threshold from childhood to adult, many of the fundamental truths that define us are challenged. For example, writing, especially writing fantasy, can be discounted as childish, unworthy, and even blasphemous. And as teenagers, we rarely have the strength or conviction to hold on to our dreams in the face of adult and societal pressure. Now, in some stories, this would be where a mysterious mentor would appear to teach you about the force or whisk you off to a wizarding school. This isn't that kind of story. I'm sorry. And I can hear some of you shouting at your speakers like Fred Savage from Princess Bride. Jesus, Grandpa, what kind of story is this? Just chill, okay? Have I ever let you down? No. So just hush and let me tell the story. <laughs> Life unfolds for our guest host, and she marries a Navy man and travels to exotic and strange ports of call compared to her native California. Bizarre places like... South Carolina and Washington State, where the cultures are dramatically different and more, shall we say, monochromatic? Uh, she felt the difference very profoundly. And then, after giving birth to her son and with her husband away on deployments, she has long hours to herself. And in those moments of quiet contemplation, her four-year-old self begins to whisper to her, and here is where, in the story, the protagonist casts off the chains that have been weighing them down and raises their head to look to the horizon and then, cue the swelling symphony, reaches for a pen. Or maybe it was a keyboard. I'm not sure. I wasn't there. But the fact remains that she embraced the love of storytelling that had so captivated her as a child. She dove in furiously trying to write the novels she so dearly wanted to write. But in 2008, she realized something. Her novels sucked. The plots didn't work. The characters were cliched. Everything was wrong. Now, did she give up? Hell no, this is definitely not that kind of story. She turned to the short story format to hone her craft and technique. She kept revising her novels, rewriting draft after draft. She was also writing poetry and nonfiction as well. In fact, to date, she's had essay and poetry entries published all over the place, from the Chicken Soup series to the Christian Science Monitor to Apex Magazine. Now, she secured an agent who then sold her first novel, Clockwork Dagger, to Harper Voyager, which was subsequently nominated for a Locus Award for Best First Novel. 
The novel was basically a steampunk version of Murder on the Orient Express with a self-assured female healer as the protagonist. So mom's force feeding of Agatha Christie definitely paid off. Uh, That was followed up with Clockwork Crown, which would become an RT reviewer's choice finalist. Other novellas and shorter works in the same story verse followed that would be bound in a collection titled Deep Roots. Now, one of those tales, Wings of Sorrow and Bone, was nominated for a Nebula Award. Now, she's got a new series, the Blood Earth series, comprised currently of the novels Breath of Earth and Call of Fire. Now, these are alt-history tales, providing an alternative spin on the facts of the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906, this one involving geomancers and an alliance with Japan that ended the Civil War. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I am so there for that. Now, friends, look. Your life is a story, but it's one that you're constantly writing. And while there is a lot in our guest host's story to be inspired by, the takeaway for me is this. No choice is a final choice. If you have the desire to discover your true path in the world and the courage to walk it, you will achieve amazing things. Friends, her zombie apocalypse weapon of choice is the longbow. The great British baking show enabled her to survive the writing process for Breath of Earth. And given the choice to be a book or a computer, she would choose a book because, and I quote, I want to smell like vanilla as I age and not be obsolete in a year. Good reasons all. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here in the Archivos Podcast Network, Beth Cato. Beth, honestly, you have been on our radar for quite some time. You have been making wonderful, delightful waves and agitations in the speculative fiction community. And I am so delighted that we were able to find the time to get you on the show, ma'am. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you, Dave. I mean... I, hearing my life story told like that, you know, that was mind-boggling and awesome. Thank you. I, I feel like you've been whispering with my mother, you know, <laughs> coming up with all these nice things to say about me to make me blush as I wait here. Well, that that's part of our job. We I, I, I say that I'm trying to create superhero origin stories with these intros, because <laughs> you guys are. I mean, for any of us who are still in the process of evolving our writing craft, those who have gone before, as you have, uh, publishing novels, acclaimed novels, uh, and other works, you are our friendly native guides. So I am I am only too proud to make you blush a bit as I introduce you for the show. Well, thank you. I am really glad to be here talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I actually, I have a quick question for you, Beth, before we get into the actual formal interview. Um, during during the stalking that went on in compiling that, that intro, um, I, I've chanced across a, a brief mention that you said that your husband and you met because of your mutual love of the Final Fantasy franchise. Would you be willing to expand on that just a little bit? How did that happen? Well, that that is a very funny story. I actually first became aware aware of him online in 1996 when I was just 16 because he had Kato Squaresoft page of Glee, which was one of the early Final Fantasy pages on the internet at that time, back wow. in those dark ages. <laughs> and 
two years later, we were both on the Final Fantasy mailing list together. And we were kind of distant friends on there. We didn't talk very much. But the one thing we both knew about each other from our biographies was that we both loved the rock group Journey as well. Well, later in 1998, it so happened that Journey was going on a tour. And at the same time, Jason was going to be going on a road trip to meet people who were on the Final Fantasy mailing list. Oh, wow. Well... Lo and behold, I said, hey, come out, you know, we can go to the concert together and, you know, hang out. And we did. And we immediately clicked and became best friends. And, you know, the rest is history. And the rest is history. (laughs) The rest is family. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) that's awesome. Wow. Talk about a a wonderful intersection of coincidences and, and taking advantage of those opportunities. That's fabulous. Yeah, it's one of those things that really sounds like it's it couldn't be real because it is such a, <laughs> just a matter of timing and coincidence. There you go. There you go. And, and you know, when that stuff lines up, I know people call me woo woo when I say this, but I, I usually take that as a sign that the universe is giving you the thumbs up saying, yeah, go for it. You're awesome. <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, a lot of people didn't believe we'd, we'd make it together because you know, I was 20 when we were married and you know, marrying a sailor and all the risks involved with that. Sure. And, by golly, here we are 17 years later, and it's like, ha, ha you know, we <laughs> ship you. Yes, proof. Every day is proof that we were right. That's awesome. 17 years, that's huge. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, let's get into this. I'm I'm keen to start a conversation with you, Beth. We usually try to limit ourselves to 20 minutes, so I'm going to set the clock. Uh, But I know... (laughs) I know my history with this and we'll probably end up ignoring it, but that's okay. We, we have goals. That's what we're shooting for. Um, I, I want to lead off, Beth, uh, talking a little bit about Octavia from Clockwork Dagger. And during an interview with uh, Fanbase Press back in August, you were talking about how Octavia had taught you a lot about developing a lead character who is strong, but not because of physical strength or a dominating presence. And that kind of tweaked in with another quote from uh, A Quiet Pint back in 2016 when you were talking about healers being seen as weak uh, and a convenience to help keep the burly heroes alive, uh, but best kept out of the action. And that really got me thinking. So I wanted to ask you about your, your insights and any guidance that you could offer our listeners regarding the creation of a strong character. It's it's something that is hammered into, especially the strong female lead is actually becoming like this this TV trope uh, that people are 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 building around, and I think there's more to it than that. And I'd like to get your your spin and your perspective on how to create a strong character in your stories. Well, the first thing that has to be mentioned is that there is a full spectrum of strength, and there are different ways to be strong. Uh, you mentioned the strong woman trope. Mm-hmm. And that's become a major topic because it, it is something that is, it's become a stereotype. It's been something almost to be mocked because it's almost like you can, you can picture what they look like on the book cover just by saying the strong woman character. Right. But like in Octavia's case, her strength is through compassion. She's a trained doctor. She's a magical healer. So she can rely on medical smarts using tools or she can call on the lady's tree, uh, essentially the goddess that she worships to heal people and use her as the channeling mechanism for that. And it's important to to think beyond the stereotypes, beyond what you think of as, you know, air quotes, the strong woman, because people will think along with that, 
oh, it's it's a woman who has to have, let's say, masculine characteristics. Right. And, of course, you have women like that who are strong. I mean, we know women who are like that, who are strong women. But a strong woman can also love pink and be in frills. And she can be tough in different ways. She can know how to use poison. She can be strong in terribly adverse situations at court or in politically manipulative dilemmas. And you have to look at different ways where strength can manifest itself. And to really look at developing fictional characters who are strong, I say look at people you know in your own life and how are they strong in everyday, mundane, boring circumstances. But you can look at like a mother who, yeah, maybe she's working a nine to five job and going to college at night and barely getting by. And she's very shy, barely speaks. But where does her strength show in her actions day to day? And you translate those kinds of subtle strengths and you can move those into a fictional character. Okay. Just, and out of curiosity, do you tend to work from a character-centric uh, standpoint or, or do, you, do you find yourself in a situation and then populate it with characters? It really depends on the story okay. and where I'm, you know, because every story grows in a different way. It's like getting plants from a garden center. You take it home, you think, okay, it's supposed to be, you know, part shade, need all this to grow. And then the plant surprises you or it's happy and then, oh, it turns out like shade after all or whatever. Stories are like that, too. They grow in funny ways that you can't really predict, and you just kind of have to go with the flow and go with your intuition and gut instinct as you write. Which must make you crazy, because as I recall, you are a confessed plotter of, of great great fortitude and commitment. So so how do you yeah. deal then with the notion of this this instability and this, this potential dramatic alteration that can occur during the process? Even though I am a hardcore plotter there has to be wiggle room and it's like for my book roar of sky that i wrote the rough draft earlier this year i had an 11,000 word outline for that oh jeez <laughs> good yeah Lord. and i i've never had an outline that was that detailed but i still had big blank spaces near the end that i had to fill i still had to do a very horrible agonizing second draft that made word crash repeatedly because of the number of track games involved <laughs> so even though i plotted to that extent the story still went where it needed to go and i had to work with it it's like a so you know a sword you think oh a sword has to be you know stout and you read about what actual swords are like and swords actually have to be kind of flexible or they're going to break as soon as they hit something okay stories are like that too they have to bend a little bit. That's That goes on a t-shirt. <laughs> that's, that's excellent right there. Brilliant. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Beth Cato after this brief promotional break. It's National Novel Writing Month, people. And if you're taking the 50,000-word NaNoWriMo challenge, then you got to start prepping. And I mean now. Archivos wants to help. From now until November 30th, any registered NaNoWriMo participant can get three months of Archivos absolutely free. Three months of all the story documentation, mapping, and timeline features, all the displays, everything you need to really wrap your head around your story totally free. With Archivos, you can look NaNoWriMo in the eye and say, I got this. Learn more about scoring three months of Archivos absolutely free at www.archivos.digital. 
That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Beth Cato. Steer us back into the the evolution of a strong character. Um, let's move past the the, and I, I I don't I'm not trying to diminish in any way the the value and relevance of the strong female character. Um, but I I want to broaden our discussion even farther beyond that and explore strength from as many different perspectives as possible. Um, so so any character separating gender from from the equation. Um, and as I was working through this, I'm thinking, well, okay, do they, does every strong character need a weakness that they overcome? Is, is that, you know, one of the, one of the primary tools that they need? I don't think they need to necessarily overcome it. Most of us don't overcome our weaknesses, but we have to learn to cope with them and live with them. Outstanding point. And that's really where the strength comes into it. I mean, in my own personal case, I'm agoraphobic. I've only been driving a car for about 10 years, and I'm still very much confined to a local radius where I'm comfortable driving. I don't like to drive at night. I don't like to drive in big cities. And it's something I have to live with. And if I have to do a writing event on the other side of town, I have to figure out, you know, if my husband has to work, how am I going to get there? Sure. So you, you learn to adapt and survive. And that's, you know, characters do the same thing. See, and that's that right there is is a profound revelation for me. Uh, uh, I, I think you know, at at my stage of story perception and development, I think the default setting is you know you create uh, weaknesses and challenges for the character to overcome. That's what you do in a story. But the notion of not overcoming your weakness but achieving in spite of it. Yes, yeah. that's exactly the point. I think you're right. That is exactly what makes a strong character. Yeah. So with Octavia, then, let's go ahead and drill down to a, a, a specific case so we can cite uh, ch- chapter and verse and examples <laughs> along the way. Um, you set up Octavia, first of all, as a healer, which traditionally in the fantasy genre is is usually relegated, as you observed, to a support position. Uh, she was also a woman in a culture where... I, as I recall, women were not uh, uh, afforded uh, the same respect and, and opportunity as men, correct? Yeah, it's a society that's very much based on World War One era Europe. Right. Okay. Okay. So you've, you've hampered her with several challenges uh, moving forward. And in keeping with the revelation we just had, uh, uh, she doesn't necessarily overcome those, those challenges, does she? No, but... She makes her strength known and she endures because that's what she has to do. And in a society like that, you kind of have to, again, going back to what I said before, you have to know when to bend so that you don't break. And that's very much what Octavia has to learn as as a way to cope and survive. And as you develop your your story points, and and as I understand, this was a lengthy process developing that first story. um, At what point, as you're, as you're, if you can remember looking at a scene and going, this is this is bland, I need to challenge her in some way. How did you evolve the opportunities to showcase Octavia's strength in a way that uh, didn't seem forced or, or uh, was, was more organic to the story you were telling? Well, there's a pivotal scene in the book where Octavia is on an airship 
as, as a common passenger and the windows are open. It's, it's only you know, been in the air for a couple hours and gremlins flood into the ship <laughs> and they're kind of these green bat cat type creatures that are creatures of magic and science together and the people in Kaskentia, her kingdom, regard them as essentially flying rats. They're pests. And there are a lot of, you know, valiant young men types, you know, what we call now in internet parlance as bros, <laughs> who decide to start, you know, picking up serving trays and things and bludgeoning them all to death and having a grand old time about it. And it's a situation where a, a number of other people, men and women, would just say, oh, okay, I'm going to quietly escape from the situation and retreat to other rooms. But Octavia takes great offense to this because she sees the creatures aren't there to be malevolent. They aren't actually hurting anyone. What they're there to do is steal silver because they love silver. They're going to basically abscond with all the silverware and retreat. <laughs> so she, in turn, takes up a tray and starts walloping the men who are attacking all the gremlins. <laughs> and to me, it was a very pivotal scene for her as a character because it is very hard to stand up against a mob like that. Mm -hmm. And she, she consciously, she's very conscious of the fact that she's not making any friends by doing this. She's making a lot of enemies. Uh, a lot of the gremlins are still going to die, but she still cannot just be demure and just retreat and be proper about it. No, she's going to hit the guys over the head with a tray. <laughs> Well, and that's intriguing right there because there is, I think that's the other quality, I think, of a strong character is there is something in their composition, some aspect of their their personality, their desires, whatever, that will not allow them to sit by when X is happening. Uh, that, that whatever weakness or challenge they have been shackled with in their life, there is a thing that will say, I don't care about X, I must take action. Yeah, and I think that is what sets a protagonist or an antagonist apart. Yeah, now that you mention it, you're right. That, that, that having the thing that will not be abided uh, is certainly certainly one of the, of the qualities or aspects that, that is endemic of that protagonist being that actually affects story that, that that is worthy of having a story built around them that's intriguing i'm, I'm gonna need to process this beth this is <laughs> you've given much food for thought and consideration that is awesome i actually want to kind of go back to a point that occurred to me while you were talking about the the the, the length of your eleven thousand word outline <laughs> uh for the most recent book it sounds like your outlines are getting longer is that the case <laughs> That's been the case with my current series, and part of that is, there, there are really two reasons involved with that. One is that it is, as you mentioned, alternate history. So as I'm going through and outlining, I'm also including historical references, and in some cases even descriptions that I want to make sure that I bring in. And, and I have everything cited so that I can go back and as I revise, double-check my sources, or triple-check in some cases. And also... My, I know my characters so well at this, at this point is that when I was outlining, my characters just start having conversations. <laughs> so in the middle of this very dry outline of, you know, plot point, they go here, they go here, they do this. All of a sudden, I'll have three paragraphs of my characters <laughs> engaging in a witty banter. <laughs> 
that will be copied and pasted and probably edited in the final draft. But when you, yeah, when they yeah. come to you, you've got to put them down, right? Yeah, I mean, if they're going to talk, I'm going to listen. That's what it comes down to. Kind of your job, actually, <laughs> as, yeah, the, as the creative writer. Awesome. Very cool. I, I I would love to have you back, Beth, like uh, uh, in another couple of books. Well, not so long, uh, but I would love to keep track of this this word count of your outlines and see if this trend continues. <laughs> yeah, see, my, my entire book will be the outline. Now. Exactly, exactly. You'll you'll be able to publish both the book and the outline <laughs> as you know collateral material. It'll be brilliant. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's 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 change the tack just a little bit. Um, both of these these main series for which uh, you have you have gained so much justifiable praise and and accolade uh, are both uh, alternate history or or steampunk worlds where you have technologies, uh, uh, whether the the terrain is is imminently recognizable as our world in the past or not, and profound magics, uh, whether it's geomancy or healing in the tree. Um, and I'm one of the things that fascinates me about urban fantasy and steampunk is the ability to integrate magic into a recognizable technology and culture in an authentic way, in a way that makes the reader go, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and and I know this is this is something that you enjoy uh, immensely too. I was wondering if you could if you could impart any insights in terms of how, as a writer, can we incorporate? And I'm going to use magic in quotes because we can roll out the old Arthur C. Clarke: "Any sufficient advanced technology can be construed as magic." Um, how can you incorporate magic into an inherently magic-less? society or culture as urban fantasy or steampunk does well first of all for me this is something that is a very personal desire um just a couple days ago on twitter there was this uh, why i write hashtag going around right and my answer for that was because magic should be real (laughs) yes yes absolutely (laughs) and that's me i mean harry potter wasn't around when i was a middle grade reader but you know in my life essentially you know that continued sense of you know why didn't i get my hogwarts letter (laughs) right right that that kind of you know why isn't this real i you know i dream it real i can see it i can see where it would fit in you know why isn't here so in my writing that's what i look to i look at you know where does magic fit into this world and when i'm looking at something it it depends on the scale too that matters a lot with how you build this into a, a book Or a a flash fiction story. Because in a book, you're looking at big picture issues as far as world building. Like magic, how does it affect the economy? Mm. How does Mm -hmm. it affect government? How do they regulate this? What do they do with it? How does it affect money? Who's in charge of this? You have to look at that scale of things. Whereas if you're doing flash fic, it's more intimate. You have, you know, you're talking about a thousand word story. So you only have a couple characters and all that, but you still have to build a world. So you do that by relying on more recognizable things that you don't have to do a lot of world building on. You mentioned mermaids or unicorns, zombies, things that are familiar. So you go, oh, okay, you know, I, I know, you know, where this is coming from. It's almost like a, a placeholder for, okay, this is magic and I kind of get what this is without needing a whole lot of extra world building around. Sure, it. you rely on the reader's experience of the genre and give them, yes. <clears throat> what, seeds or little little packets that they can unpack on their own. 
Yeah, you show how it's unique in your world, but you also, because you do need to keep the word count low, you also rely on it as, okay, I mentioned a unicorn, you kind of know what I'm talking about, you know. Right. Whereas if you're going for a novel and building a unicorn into it, that's an entirely different scale where you're looking at, you know, where does it fit in? Is this a subplot? Is it main plot? How does, what does this mean to my character, et cetera? Do you feel it's it's important to understand where the magic comes from? It and depends. It, it depends on the, on the story. story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your instinct, though? I mean, when you when you're building your magic system, whether it actually goes into the story or not, do you know from whence the magic comes? In both my novel series, yes. Okay. For short stories, it may not matter. <laughs> Good point. And I can just kind of, you know, it depends, though. I mean, if it's something that comes up in revisions or if I have critique partners who say, okay, you know, I think you can delve deeper into the magic, then I'll know, okay, there's a deficit here that I, I need to figure out. And then I'll need to ask myself those hard questions to figure it out. Okay. Is there a flag that goes off? I mean, you've you've mentioned uh, uh, critique readers and beta readers uh, often in, in many of your interviews. And I actually, I don't know if I'm going to have time to talk about that, but I want to. Um, but are there other uh, uh, flags or alerts from your brain as a storyteller to indicate at what point you've got enough magic? Or is that just an instinct that you evolve as you write more stories? It's instincts and going back to critique readers, you listen to the feedback and you especially look for patterns in the feedback. And that's going from beta readers to getting rejections and mm. looking for patterns in the rejections and knowing when to go, okay, I've been resisting revising the story again, but now I've had two or three editors who've said, who give me personal rejections who both ding me on this. I probably should take a look at it again. Okay. Okay. Actually, let's talk about that for just, we're out of time, but I don't care. It's my podcast. <laughs> um, the, uh, that, that, that dynamic of critique readers uh, is, is fascinating to me. I know a lot of people, uh, a lot of our listeners, and a lot of personal colleagues who are a part of writing groups, who have active uh, and, and dynamic uh, uh, beta readers or critique readers who are instrumental in ensuring that their stories uh, have that that tone, that punch, that laser sharp focus uh, that generally makes them successful. So, how do you organize your critique readers? At what point do you bring them into your process, uh, and how do you process their the the feedback you get from them? Well, for my novels, I tend to have a couple of reliable readers that I go to because I people that I've exchanged novels with before because that's what really what I like to do is I like to reciprocate. Hmm, I think okay. that's. And that's true with short stories, too. I really like to kind of go to people and say, okay, you know, I'll help you, you help me. And then, you know, we all really benefit from the feedback going around. That's excellent. That's excellent. Plus, you both get a handle on each other's writing styles, so you can be very articulate uh, on both sides of the critique. That's awesome. And we're probably fans of each other, too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We have common interests there. Uh, For my novels, I'm very fortunate in that I have an agent who is a fantastic editor, (laughs) and is very good at going through my novels after, you know, stage three of revisions on my part and going, okay, you still need to fix this, this, and this before you can send it to your editor. And I will argue with her on some points because I'll see the bigger picture of what I'm going to do with the next book or, you know, where I'm going. But I also know that she's a darn good editor and and her (laughs) red pen, it might make my manuscript bleed and make me feel like I'm bleeding, but it's feedback I really need to pay attention to. 
Wow. That's so that's I, awesome. To have that level of trust with your agent, that's that's exceptional. It means a lot. And not all agents will edit like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if you're querying right now and looking for agents, a lot of times there'll be interviews or on their website, they'll say what kind of agent they are. So if you want one that edits, go for that. You know, look for those comments and, and pursue that kind of agent. Because in my case, I mean, I, Rebecca Sprouse at DeFiori and Company is my agent and I love her. She's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Very cool. That's, I think that's good advice. I think, I think knowing what you're looking for uh, as, you, as you start that stage of your career in terms of getting an agent is vital. Uh, and knowing that that possibility exists, that there could be an agent that actually also is an editor and can help mm-hmm. polish your book before shopping it around to submit it to another editor for another round <laughs> of revisions. Uh, I can only assume that that helps enormously. That's very cool. Beth, I, I hate to say it, but the, the clock has actually manifested strange, unearthly powers. The, the, the ground is cracking beneath its feet, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm fearing for my life here. I can only assume either, either it's manifested geomancy powers or I'm, <laughs> we're, we're out of time. I'm going to assume the latter. Uh, this, this has been a delight, ma'am. Thank you so very much for making the time. Well, thank you, Dave. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Yeah, it, I, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. And and friends, this is usually the point where Marie and I swap, you know, what are we taking away from this one? Uh, uh, and honestly, it's it, for me, it's going to go back to the, uh, the discussion of strong characters and how strong characters do not overcome a weakness. They operate and achieve in spite of the weakness or with the weakness. Uh, and that right there, I think, is, is really going to kind of transform the way I review and assess protagonists moving forward and how I write them myself. That's awesome. Um, now, that was a great conversation, guys. I'm sure your pens were scribbling furiously or you're giving thanks to the podcasting gods that this is actually recorded and you can play it back again and get all the good bits out later. Regardless, it gets better. Because in seven days, we're going to have Beth come back. We still won't have Marie, but I'll be here. And we're going to introduce into that mix, into that equation, uh, a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who will set the table for a brainstorming feast uh, that is going to be epic in in proportion and quality. I I can see this. I am prescient at this point. I can see the future. It's going to be fabulous. So friends, make that scene, but it's seven days and I know that's a long long darn time so friends I'm, normally I turn to Marie to, to help us figure out what you're going to do over the next seven days but I'll assume those responsibilities uh, for this episode and I will suggest to you uh, uh, and it's not necessarily a writing exercise but rather it is it is a viewing epi- uh, exercise F- cultivate your reviewer's eye because every writer needs that as well and go back through your favorite characters from movies or comics or books and find out how they fit on the uh, criteria of strength that that Beth just uh, laid out for us and explored with us during that last 20 minutes. Where is their weakness that they do not overcome, but rather persevere in spite of? Uh, Do they have one? And if not, how does that change the narrative that's being told? Refine your reviewer's eye uh, uh, and explore some of these new ideas that we laid out for you. Actually, new for me, certainly. 
Okay. I will tell you, friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the amazing. Look for the awesome. And if you look for it, friends, I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back in seven days. Until then, you guys, stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Archivos Insights is copyright 2017 by WonderThink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org. Theme music for this episode of Archivos Insights was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.